Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them they gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. When I was a kid in primary school, there was um, an area of the pl playground that we just knew as the marble area. I don't think that's what it was officially called and, and I don't think that's what the teachers thought it was set aside for. I think it has some cricket nets in it or something like that. But the reason we all knew it as the marble area was because every year or so, 
there'd be a marble craze. And when that happened, every single kid in the school pretty much would be in this area playing marbles. Now, I've always been fascinated by the way that this phenomenon would would play out. For most of the year, there'd be no kids whatsoever in that area. It was just deserted. And then one day, there'd be a couple of kids on their own, just playing marbles. Then the next day, there'd be a few more, a handful. And then sometimes that would be it, and, and nothing more would come of it. It'd just die back down again. But then at other times, things kept building. The next day, there'd, there'd be a handful, and then the next day after that, there'd be a small crowd, and then things would reach the tipping point. And you'd be out in the playground, looking at the small crowd, thinking, I think this is it. I think it's time to, to find the marbles out of the cupboard. And you would, and then sure enough, the next day, every single kid in the school would be crammed into that marble area for the next few weeks, except for the one individual trying to bring back the yo-yo craze. (laughs) At this point in Mark's biography of Jesus' life, what we see is something like that. It's, It's the tipping point. We've already seen that Jesus draws crowds. But now at this point, we we see things tip over so that he draws the attention of people from near and people from very far as well. And it becomes almost impossible to ignore him. And as a result he starts to draw some pretty intense responses. And so sitting behind our chapter today are some inevitable questions that come from this tipping point. Like, how are people going to respond to Jesus' popularity? And especially, how are the authorities going to respond to Jesus' popularity? Who are going to be the supporters of Jesus and who are going to be the opponents of Jesus? And most importantly, how is Jesus himself going to respond to this kind of popularity? What sort of response is Jesus actually looking for from from people anyway? These are the kind of questions that are all jostling against each other in the background of this part of Mark's biography today. As we see, both Jesus' opposition and his popularity are growing. Now remember, Jesus' disciples last week we saw they'd been walking along and they're picking grain as they go. And the Pharisees, they'd been mortified by this because they were doing it on a Sabbath, a day of rest. And then Jesus didn't seem to be interested in defending the conventional understanding of the Sabbath. Instead, he had the audacity to say that he himself is the Lord of the Sabbath. It doesn't sound like it in our translation. I don't think our flicker's working again. Can you advance for me, Joel? It doesn't sound like it in our translation, but probably Jesus and these Pharisees were on their way up to the synagogue in that event. And so 3 verse 1, it literally says, and he entered again into the synagogue. So probably what's going on is that the same Pharisees who've just had a go at Jesus because of what his disciples were doing, they're now sitting in the synagogue watching him like hawks. And they're watching him like hawks because as they've all come in, they see a man sitting there with a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees are watching to see if Jesus is going to flaunt the Sabbath himself and heal this guy. We're not told exactly what's wrong with his hand, like whether it was polio when he was younger or something, or maybe a stroke, or maybe a horrible accident. But whatever the case, it's something quite serious. And this guy, he finds himself as a test case. Now, it's probably not the case that this guy's feeling awkward, wishing everyone would just leave him alone. Jesus has been to this synagogue before and healed before there 
And he's probably come there, this guy, because he's hoping that Jesus will heal him. But now, with the Pharisees just having had a go at Jesus about his disciples, and now with them sitting there, frowning, watching, he must, he must have been afraid that maybe Jesus wouldn't heal him after all. Maybe Jesus would just leave it, not wanting to poke the bear or kick the hornet's nest. And who could blame him? The two big markers of Jewish identity were circumcision and keeping the Sabbath. And breaking the Sabbath, according to people like this, should be punishable by death. And according to their tradition, healing on the Sabbath was working, was breaking the Sabbath. The the atmosphere there in that synagogue must have been electric. They must have almost been able to feel the intense desire of, of the man wanting to be healed, clashing against the righteous zeal of these Pharisees wanting to defend this, the integrity of the Sabbath. But actually, the Pharisees and this man are not the only ones who are feeling strongly about what's happening here. Jesus, he wants to make a public, a public point of this and so he gets the man up in front of everyone and he asks in verse 4, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? This is a pretty provocative question because if they say to do good and save life, then their issue with Jesus healing on the Sabbath just evaporates like that. But if they say to do evil and to kill, well, they're never going to say that. They'd just be monsters. Obviously, the first option is the right one. And really, a question like this, put like this, it demands a response. It's got to be answered. But we read, they remained silent. And by refusing to respond, they're actually speaking volumes about their hearts. And this is always the case with Jesus, actually. It's not really an option not to respond to Jesus because even a failure to respond to Jesus always speaks volumes. Look at how Jesus responds to their silence in verse 5. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus, he looks around, he looks each one of them in the eye and their refusal to see the obvious and their hard-heartedness towards this suffering man and their hard-heartedness towards him, it makes him angry. And it makes him deeply hurt. This is Jesus' righteous zeal right there. Not upholding the popular conventions of his day. He's passionate about saving life and about doing good. And so strong is his zeal that he refuses to meet the expectations of his opponents, to bow to them. And he heals this man courageously right there in front of them for them all to see. And as a result of Jesus' stand, we see that the opposition against him grows dramatically. Verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The irony and the hypocrisy here is enormous. They go out from there on the Sabbath, plotting evil and planning to kill Jesus. And they do it even with the Herodians. Now, Herod Antipas was exactly the sort of man who does evil and takes life. 
He'd been unfaithful in his marriage and his wife had had to flee, probably for her life, back to her father in another land. He'd taken his brother's wife and then he'd imprisoned John the Baptist for criticising him about all of this. And as we know a bit later on, he kills John the Baptist. And these, these zealous men, these Pharisees, zealous to keep the Sabbath pure, they plot with Herod's supporters how they can together kill Jesus. We're only up to the third chapter of Mark, but already we've reached this really low point where opposition to Jesus is growing quickly. But at the same time, next we see that Jesus' op- his popularity is growing quickly too. Jesus makes a strategic withdrawal at this point to somewhere beside the Lake of Galilee. And we're told that a large crowd of people follow him from the Galilee area. But we're told it's not just people from Galilee now. This is where we see that that kind of tipping point. Look at verse 8. When they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, that's down south of Jerusalem, and the regions across the Jordan, that's Perea, and Tyre, and, and Sidon, that's Phoenicia, up north. People are walking five days to see Jesus. People within Israel and even people from outside Israel are coming. And Mark gives us a picture of an overwhelming crowd. Look at verse 9. Because of the crowd, Jesus told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. This is a picture of overwhelming human need and and desperation. It's like a a wave of need is threatening to engulf Jesus. So many sick people are crowding together and and pushing forward that Jesus has to get his disciples to have a boat ready on the water, probably something like this, so that he can jump into it whenever he needs to get some space from them. And it's not just a sad scene of, of human physical need. It's darker than that. Look at verse 11. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Whereas the people in the crowd, they crowd Jesus out to the point of crushing him. The evil spirits, they cower before him and they know who he is, which is ironic because people who should have known don't, as we'll see. Here's a man saving life. Here's a man doing good unintimidated by the stifling religious authorities or the oppressive secular authorities, and the crowds are loving it. His popularity is is exploding. But what we see next is that Jesus is not actually after popularity. Jesus is after more than mere fans. And this brings us to our next point. Jesus pushes beyond popularity to call a new people out of the old Look at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and and he called to those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So, so far we've seen Jesus' opposition begin to solidify and we've seen Jesus' popularity explode But at this critical point, Jesus makes a deliberate move to solidify who exactly are his supporters. But look at this inner group that Jesus calls. We've got a fisherman at the head. 
who gets the nickname Rock, that's what Peter means, I'm not sure that that's particularly flattering, got a couple of hot-headed brothers, James and John, we've got some people we don't even really hear that much about, we've got Matthew, who is probably Levi, the tax collector we met earlier, and then a bit further along, strangely, we've got Simon the Zealot, who would have been more at home fighting against tax collectors than being there as part of the inner group alongside one. And then at the end, we've got this supporter who we're told betrayed Jesus. This is an interesting list. I don't think it's who we'd choose. But we shouldn't miss what Jesus is doing here. Everything is deliberate. Jesus goes up on a mountainside. He calls who he wants. He calls 12 and he calls them to a mission. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Like the 12 tribes of Israel were called at Mount Sinai to be God's chosen people for the sake of the world, not because they're so wonderful or powerful in and of themselves, but because of God's faithful love. So here Jesus is calling a new people, a new people out of the old. And notice, Jesus doesn't choose 11 followers so that he himself is the 12th. Jesus is not simply a part of God's new people. He's the one who calls them from the mountainside to himself. What marks these people out from the crowds as as the new people of God is, is three things. They're called by him. They're called to be with him. And they're called to share in his mission. Out of this huge crowd, Jesus chooses just 12. But from this new people, he's going to gather his kingdom and build his kingdom. Not a kingdom of fans, but a kingdom of so much more. And this brings us to our last point. Jesus calls a people to be his family who do do the will of God by sitting at his feet. We'll see this as it unfolds in what happens next. So look at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Now some of us are thinking, how is that even possible? You know, how can you possibly be too busy to eat? But there are a few situations where you could imagine this being the case. Maybe in times of war, on a battlefield, or maybe in times of disaster, on a rescue mission. It seems that Jesus' first lesson for this inner group of supporters is that what they're doing is incredibly important work, urgent even. In fact, as we'll see, warfare and rescue are not far off what Jesus is doing in bringing the kingdom of God near. But for some people, it sounds to them like things are out of control. Masses of people are threatening to crush Jesus. So many people are crowded into a little house that they're not even able to take care of themselves and eat. Sure, Jesus got control over evil and and sickness, but he's lost control over the crowds and over his supporters, and it seems he's lost control over himself. Well, that's what some of them are saying. And so here in Mark, we see opposition to Jesus coming from an unnatural place. Look at verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Don't you just love the honesty of Scripture at this point? 
I mean, this is a book where the author has told you honestly in the first verse that he thinks Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But then here he tells you honestly that Jesus' family at this point thought he was out of his mind. How do you explain that? How do you give an account for that? The only way is that this really is an eyewitness account. This is Mark writing down what Simon Peter saw and heard firsthand. And Mark's not interested in lying to you. He's only interested in giving you the whole truth. Because even though this truth is is incredibly unflattering, this event in Jesus' life is really important for us to see because it tells us that there's more than one way to oppose Jesus. Jesus' family miss his power because he's too familiar. But what are they thinking? They treat Jesus like he's an 18-year-old who's kind of just moved out of house for the first time and been playing computer games for 10 days straight with no sleep and no food. And he needs his mummy to come, home, come to him and call him home to have a bit of a sleep. This opposition of Jesus' family, it's unexpected and it's downright hurtful. But the opposition we see next is dark and dangerous. Look at verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. There's danger here for two reasons. Here it's, it's not just the fans who've come down from Jerusalem. It's Jesus' opponents come to check him out. And it turns out they haven't come to talk. They've come to pick a fight. They've come saying that Jesus is not simply out of his mind, but he's possessed by the chief demon. And so he's able to pick on these lesser demons by using this chief demon's power. Now that's a pretty serious and dangerous opposition right there. Jesus is not good, not on about saving life. He's evil. But look at how Jesus destroys their argument in verse 23. He says, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And in verse 27 he says, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What Jesus is doing is obviously not Satan against Satan. It just doesn't make any sense. This, it is about kingdoms toppling over. This is about warfare. And this is about rescue. Because this is about Jesus tying up the strong man and plundering his house. When you read Mark's gospel, his biography of Jesus' life, All this emphasis on evil spirits can seem so foreign to the daily experience of most of us. Don't you reckon as you read it? And even actually when you read the Old Testament, you don't find very many parallels to this in the Old Testament, to this kind of stuff, do you? Why is there so much attention given to exorcism here? Like most things in this biography, interpreting the exorcisms right is all about getting Jesus' identity right. And, that, and this is where Jesus points us in his response to the peop- these people. That's a bit hard to see. Have a look in verse 28. Jesus isn't intimidated by their dark and dangerous opposition. Having called them over so he can talk to, straight to their face, he gives them a terrifying warning. And he says, Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. 
God is extremely gracious. He'll, he'll forgive anyone, anything, which is amazing. But he has one thing, verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. What these people could see clearly but refused to acknowledge was that Jesus' exorcisms cannot be separated from the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the anointed one who establishes God's kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit himself. What they were seeing with their own eyes meant it was impossible for them to miss that God's kingdom has come near in Jesus. They were seeing that in Jesus' presence, Satan's kingdom was crumbling all around them. But they would rather blaspheme God. They would rather turn their back on God and not see that, refuse to see that, than ever bend their knee to Jesus, God's spirit-anointed king. And in the end, that is unforgivable. It's at this point that the questions about who are Jesus' opposition and and who are his supporters and, and how he wants us to respond to him, it's at this point that they stop jostling around in the background and they come right up the front for everyone to see. Because in verse 31... Jesus' mother and brothers arrive to take charge of him. But the thing is, they find themselves literally stuck on the outside because of the crowd who are, who are there with Jesus. And so they send someone in to fetch him. And so some people say to Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus says in verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. What a shocking thing to say. Something more powerful, more pressing, more sacred than even the bonds of a natural family exists in that room. He looks looks the people around, around him in the eye and he tells them they're not just his people. He's not just their king. They are his family. But Jesus' own natural family, at least at this point in time, they find themselves both literally and metaphorically on the outside. Because Jesus tells us here the exact response that he wants from all people, whoever we are. And he says to those listening in verse 35, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And clearly here God's will is that like those seated in a circle around Jesus, we too would be sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. It's almost at this point as if Jesus addresses us. It's almost like he's asking us here, are we insiders or are we outsiders? Are we hostile opponents or are we well-meaning opponents? Or are we just fans? Or are we brothers and sisters and mothers. There are four responses in this chapter to Jesus. There's the hostile opposer, there's the kind of well-meaning opposer, there's the fan, but the response that Jesus wants for us is to sit at his feet, recognizing him as both our king and our kin, seeing that more powerful and more pressing, more sacred than even the bonds of natural family is that bond that we have with him. Now next week, We're going to see more about this as Jesus talks in detail about the different responses to him. 
But I just want to finish today by saying a little bit more about this well-meaning opposition to Jesus, which stands out so starkly in this passage and so confronting. Because on the one hand, I think we can think, how could Jesus' family have made this mistake? How could they think that this man who can draw crowds to him and, and heal a man with a withered arm, this, this man who has demons cowering at his feet, how could, he think, how could they think that he needs them to come and say, Jesus, why aren't you eating your vegetables? But in a way, we can do a similar thing. They're thinking Jesus needs a bit of a help in his mission. You know, he's given it a good go, but he's bitten off more than he can chew, obviously. Jesus is failing and he just wasn't up to the task. And it's understandable, of course, he's being overwhelmed and overrun and assaulted on all sides. And they're thinking that they'll just step in and give him a bit of a breather. Their opposition is well-meaning. And in a way, it's possible that we could do a similar thing to them. Like them, we might like Jesus, we might even love Jesus. But we might think today that Jesus is failing. He's just not up to the task. It's understandable, he's being overwhelmed and overrun and assaulted on all sides by secular progressives, by the ABC, by the gay lobby, by scientific naturalism, by materialism. How could he compete with Netflix? And we think we better step in and give him a bit of a breather. We'd better frame his message for him in a way that suits the times. You know, to start with Jesus, you should probably leave off with all this demon exorcism stuff. Miracles are a bit risky too. In fact, it might just be best to put a bit of distance between Jesus and the Bible. But if we're thinking like that, if we think we need to repackage Jesus, if we, need, if we think that we need to help him make sense to the world today, by changing him, make him sound less crazy for the world, then maybe we too are actually just well-meaning opponents. Jesus is offering his followers an alternative way to view the world, a worldview that clashes with every other human way of seeing the world. It's beautiful. It's, it's coherent, but it's also comprehensive. He doesn't need our help. He calls us to sit under him. Back then and today, Jesus has totally got this. He's in control. We need to sit at his feet and listen and let him shape our view of the world as our king and our kin. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the heart and the power of Jesus and Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be those with hard hearts, whether we sit there in silence when a response is demanded, or whether we oppose in hostility or well-meaning. Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts, soften our hearts, so that we would listen to your voice spoken through Christ. Lord, that we would bring our entire selves under his loving command. Lord, we thank you that he is not just a powerful king, but he is a loving king who would even call himself our brother. Lord, we pray that as we're surrounded by so many messages in this world, that we would see this world through Christ's eyes. Move us by your Holy Spirit so that we would be shaped by Jesus in everything and that we would see the treasure that you have given us in knowing him. 
Lord, help us to be those who gladly sit at his feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.